0: Good morning. It is great to be back with you. We had a successful, for lack of a better word, successful journey north. And uh, as I indicated in an email, we were able to resolve with the help of a kindly disposed USCIS immigration officer, uh, Emma's immigration issue. We were also able to attend to several other issues that have been nagging us for some time. And uh, it was wonderful to reconnect with family and friends. But as I just stated, it is great to be back with you. Now, where were we? Romans. Romans. You should have your Bibles open already to the 11th chapter. Romans chapter 11. And I invite you to follow along. As I read verses 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Elijah. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, we are going to be here for the next six or, let me just pause for a moment. If you hear the squeaking, there are crickets up in the attic. Just ignore it. Give me your attention. It is a little distracting, I know, but they won't harm you. Nothing's going to happen up there. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11 for the next, uh, yes, probably six or seven uh, Sundays. Uh, while I was away, I, I read it at least a half dozen times or so. I read it in a hotel room, in a, on a train, on a plane, in a, hotel, in a hotel lobby. And as I read it, I did so with paper and pen in hand, asking myself the following question. Why should our study of Romans 11 be the highlight of our week? Why should our study of Romans 11 be the highlight, yes, you heard me correctly, of our week? Not the Dallas Cowboys tonight, not local Coyote on a Friday night, not anything else you get up to during the week, but why, as we gather here on a Sunday morning, should our study of Romans 11 be the highlight of our week? As I read it, yes, again, half dozen times, I came up with the same five answers, and I want to give them to you this morning. I'm going to work backwards through the chapter. And so, one through five, working backwards. And as we come back to the fifth, it will bring us full circle to the text we read, the first six verses, which is where I want to end. But I'm going to work backwards, beginning at the end of the chapter. Here is reason number one why our study, our meditation upon Romans 11 should be, ought to be the highlight of our week. Number one, it tells us who God is. That's wonderful. It's simple. It's beautiful in its simplicity. Romans 11 tells us who God is. I'm thinking primarily of what Paul says beginning in verse 33 at the end of the chapter going through to verse 36. There he celebrates the fact that God's judgments are unsearchable, his ways are inscrutable, and then he brings his doxology, he brings his worship to a head in verse 36. For from him, from God, and through him, And to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Three prepositions. From Him, God is the efficient cause of all things. Through Him, God is the instrumental cause of all things. And to Him, God is the final cause of all things. This universe, please understand me, this universe is simply the stage upon which God has chosen to reveal his glory. We are simply players in that great, grand revelation. All things from him, through him, and to him, to him be glory forever. This God is incomparable. This God, says Paul, is incomprehensible. And he makes it abundantly clear in that succinct statement, again in verse 36, that this God is a sovereign being. That simply means he is the first cause of all things. The motions, the motions, actions, activities... Of all his creatures depend upon his concurrence. God is the principle of cohesion that holds the universe together. It is impossible for anything to exist for a moment apart from God. He rules the universe fully and completely with only one purpose in view, only one, his glory. This chapter tells us who God is. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. And it ought to be the highlight of our week. There are a plethora of reasons why we need to hear that. One reason in particular that stands out is simply this. We live in interesting days. We live in a fascinating time, really. I don't mean to bore you, but at the risk of boring you, here it is. There was a man named Epicurus, 4th century BC. He was a Greek philosopher. He was the first of what are known as materialistic or naturalistic philosophers. And Epicurus, basically, we can summarize his worldview in three statements. Number one, the world is uncreated. Remember, this is 4th century BC. The world is uncreated. Two, we are part of an ongoing and self-sustaining universe. Number three. We must enjoy life as best we can. It sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Epicureanism had fallen out of favor by the 7th century, A.D. By the 18th century, it made a remarkable comeback with what is called the Enlightenment. Now, don't miss this. It is now the normative worldview within Western society. It is now the normative worldview within American society. That is the only way to understand what has happened in the last 20 years. The worldview of this society has undergone a radical shift. This, the worldview that shapes this society and culture, please my friend understand this, it is no longer theistic. It is naturalistic materialistic. This universe is self-created, right? Just goes on eternally. We don't know how it began. We are all part of this ongoing, self-sustaining universe. Therefore, what we can, can we do? We can simply make the, best of, the most of this life as we possibly can. This is now the normative, definitive worldview within our society, and it's shaping everything. It's touching law. That's the only way you can explain the Supreme Court's decision concerning the definition of marriage. It has to do with world view. Not only is it touching law, it is touching morality. Morality is now relative. You can get up to whatever you jolly well please. And that's how we explain this nation's turmoil and debate surrounding abortion. It touches politics and that's how we explain the gradual progressive collapse of the three branches of government government and the fine balance that has existed in this country for centuries between societal obligations and individual rights please understand all of these things are merely symptoms they are not the problem the problem, again, is that this nation, this society, has undergone a major shift in world view. Now, Christian, you're in for a rough ride. We're in for a rough ride ahead. The waters are awfully choppy, and they're only going to get worse. What are you going to hold on to? Romans 11. The God of Romans 11. The God is sovereign. Sovereign. God rules and reigns. All things are from him and through him and to him. We navigate the course of our lives with this overarching, all-encompassing truth that God is a sovereign being, the universe simply being the stage upon which he has chosen to reveal his glory. That's the first reason. I hope I'm convincing you as to why Romans 11 ought to occupy first place in your week, why it ought to be the highlight of our week. Second reason is this Romans 11 tells us what God is doing. It not only tells us who God is, it tells us what God is doing. Now remember, we're working backwards. We see what God is doing, yes, evidently throughout the chapter, but it is summed up for us in verses 30 through 32. Just look for a moment at verse 32, what Paul pens there. For God, there are two parts to this statement, this verse. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. What is God doing? That's what he's doing. That's it in a nutshell. The first part of the statement, God has consigned all to disobedience, hearkens back to what Paul says in the third chapter. Remember, there he takes us into God's courtroom. And there he demonstrates that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless, worthless. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so all, whether they be Jew or Gentile, all of humanity stands condemned in the sight of God. That is what he's saying They're repeating in the first part of verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience. That he may, here's the second part, have mercy on all, whether they be Jew or Gentile. What has Paul been emphasizing since the outset of the ninth chapter? That God's people consist of who? Whether it be Jew or Gentile, they consist of those whom God foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those he pre- whom he predestined, as Paul celebrates at the end of the eighth chapter, God also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, He glorified. You see, God has a purpose, God has a plan, and all of His activities focus on this plan. It is namely the revelation of His glory in a very specifically defined group of people. Those whom He foreknew. Listen to these four precious words spoken by the Lord Jesus as recorded in John 10. I know my own. Oh, I love it. I know my own. He elaborates on that in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. Listen to these three statements from the lips of the Lord Jesus as he prays to his father. You have given me authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me he goes on and he prays i am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me and still as he prays to his father a third statement i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my Glory. Prior to creation, God chose out of humanity, foreseen as fallen, those whom He would give to Christ. What is God doing? He is saving His people, He is bringing to fruition that eternal covenant between God the Father, God the Son. Here are a people. He gives them to his son. His son comes and redeems them. The spirit comes and seals them. And the consummation of our salvation is an absolute certainty. Because it rests on this work of the triune God. God the father chose me. God the Son redeemed me, and God the Spirit has sealed me for the day of my salvation. Oh, we need to hear this. This ought to be the highlight of our week. We need to hear this. I was reflecting on this while I was away. I think I was sitting in a train station at the time, reading this chapter, thinking it through, and the headlines were all over the place. I couldn't make much of them. They were all in French. We were in Montreal at the time, and my French is pitiful these days. But nevertheless, I could make out the gist of it from the titles, the bold capitals, and the, and the, and the, and the pictures, and, and I could make sense of, of much of what was going on, focusing on the Middle East and much of the turmoil there. You know, when you, when you think of it, each generation, each generation has defining moments, doesn't it? Uh, if we were to interview someone born in the 20s, um, I don't know if there's anybody here who fits into that category, likely not, maybe so, a couple of you just looked down. If, if, if we were to interview someone born in the 20s and we were to ask them, where were you in the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor? Oh, it was a defining moment. They'd be able to tell you where they were, what they were eating, what they were wearing. It, it was just a day burned upon their psyche, right? You fast forward after World War II. Someone born late 40s, early 50s. And if you were to ask them, where were you when Lee Harvey Oswald shot the President Kennedy? They'd be able to tell you. It was an event that defined a generation. Our generation, where were you on September 11th? Right? It was 14 years, just this past Friday, 14 years ago. It is an event burned upon the psyche of this generation. And you look at the aftermath of September 11, 2001. Uh, since then, the, the war on terror, I, I don't know what the number is, but it has claimed uh, thousands of lives in terms of military personnel, hasn't it? Thousands of lives. It has claimed the lives of, I think, it's approaching a quarter million Uh, Civilian lives, Iraqi, Afghanistan. It has cost the United States more than $4.5 trillion. Did you realize that? What we could have done with that money. $4.5 trillion in 14 years. It has left the Middle East in absolute turmoil. The Islamic State now controls an area the size of Great Britain. Millions of dollars of revenues from oil weekly. I think they now boast uh, a military force approximating 100,000. My friends, this isn't going away. This is not a conventional warfare. September 11th in the aftermath is something that is going to define this generation. And if the Lord should tarry, it is going to define generations to come. It's unsettling. Isn't it? If we if we if we focus on it, gravitate toward it, and obsess over it, it is very unsettling. These defining moments in our cultural, national, societal, even individual experience. And in the midst of it all, we 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 need to regularly pause and simply ask him the all-important question. It is this what is God doing? Here is what God is doing, my friend. He is saving his people. He is doing a thing in our day we would not even believe if we were told it. He is doing a thing, calling forth, saving that people, again, those whom the Father chose before the foundation of the earth. Those whom the Son redeemed, purchased with his blood upon Calvary's cross in time. Those who have been regenerated, born again and sealed by the Holy Spirit. You look back over the centuries and all that we see is God fulfilling, accomplishing this plan. And what a wonderfully comforting reality it is to know that whatever transpires, whatever the newspaper headlines are tomorrow, I know this. God reigns and rules over it, and he is accomplishing his purposes for his people, not only in the midst of it, but in and through it. Oh, you need Romans 11, my friend. You really do. This world is depressing at times, isn't it? Downright discouraging. And we can excuse the expression. At times we can run around like chickens with our heads cut off, can't we? Just here, there, everywhere, wondering what's going on. How do we explain all this? No, we rest in this glorious truth that we do know what God is doing. That God has an eternal purpose focused on a specific people for the revelation of his eternal glory. And that's where we rest. Here's the third reason. Why this chapter ought to be the highlight of your week. It shows us, it tells us. That God always keeps his promise. God always keeps his promise. Working backwards through the text, we see it more or less in verses 25 through 29. We're not going to look at all these verses now. We'll get there in due course. Just take a glance, a peek at verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I love it. We don't use that word much, do we? we? start using it more. I challenge you. Use it three times in the rest of the day. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Oh, the faithfulness, unchanging, unwavering faithfulness of our God. Hear this, please. God's nature does not change. 1 Timothy 6:16 6, God alone possesses immortality. Building. God's character does not change. James 1:17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. God's truth does not change. Isaiah 40, verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Keep building. God's purpose does not change. Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations. Oh, we need to hear that. We need to meditate upon, reflect upon, internalize the truth articulated in verse 29. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We uh, live in a land of plenty. We live in a land of privilege. That is certainly true. I think a problem that plagues us, even as Christians potentially in our day, I don't want to belabor this, I've got to watch my watch here, but a problem that, that, that can plague us and we can, a pit we can easily fall into in our day is this one, um, thinking we're secure. Security is an illusion. Do you know that? Security is an illusion. <coughs> You can have your 401K and invest thousands, if not millions. That's fine. You can have the latest uh, alarm system in your home. That's fine, too. You can practice defensive driving all you want. And you can watch your intake in terms of what you eat and drink, live healthy and eat healthy and all of those sorts of things. You can do it all, my friend. And we can fall into the trap of thinking. Thinking that in these things I will find a security that will guarantee tomorrow. My friend, you can't guarantee the next 10 seconds. You control nothing, really. I control nothing. And security is an illusion. Here's a question. Here's a a heart-penetrating question. What are we going to hold on to? What are we going to hold on to when uninvited and unanticipated and unwanted change literally rocks our lives? What are you going to hold on to? What are you going to hold on to? Let me repeat the question. When uninvited, unanticipated, unwanted change rocks, literally shakes your life. What are you going to hold on to? We live in an ever-changing world, a world, a life in this constant state of flux. We have no idea what's going to happen next year. We have no idea what's going to happen next month. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We have no idea what's going to happen the rest of this day. When change comes, and it will, maybe it has already, you and I, we better be holding on for all we're worth to something that changes not. We need to hold on and we need a firm grasp of a God who is unchanging in his essence, his nature, his word, his truth, his promises, his purposes in the midst of a changing world. What are you going to do when a loved one is killed in a car accident? What are we going to hold on to when life wastes away from cancer? What are we going to hold on to when your spouse abandons you, when your children reject you? What will you hold on to? I was profoundly discouraged and encouraged at the same time. I know it sounds like a contradiction. I don't know how else to explain it. Last Sunday, we went back to visit the church where I I pastored for some years and we were, we were partaking in their fellowship lunch, their fellowship meal, and sitting with, with a young couple. Mid-20s. I still think of this guy as a boy because I've known him since he was 10 years of age. Maybe even 9 or 8 years of age. I can't recall now. Here he is now in his mid-20s. Married 6, 7 years ago. 5 years ago. They lost their firstborn at the moment of birth. Alright? That's a trial in and of itself. God has blessed them with two children since, since, praise the Lord. This past year, his wife diagnosed with MS and Crohn's disease, and her health is now beginning to plummet. I was overwhelmed, discouraged. Wow, what a raw end of the deal this couple's getting. 25, two children under the age of three, lives before them, and now completely shaken or rocked. By, by her health condition. And yet in the midst of it all, I was overwhelmingly encouraged. Why? Because they have a firm grasp on an unchanging God. Oh, what an encouragement to my soul. You know, you, you know in those situations, you're kind of sitting there thinking, well, how can, I, how can I minister to these people? What can I say to encourage them? I end up not really saying anything, but I'm the one who goes away Encouraged. As I see that their faith is firmly planted on a rock that will not be moved, that they've entered into an understanding of this God based on the 29th verse, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, and they have a firm grasp on the promises of God. They know what God hasn't promised them. That's part of our problem. We're completely confused, baffled when it comes to what God has actually promised in his word. They have a firm grasp on what God has promised. Oh, they know. They know in the words of Romans 8, 28, that God has promised to work all things together for their good. They know that. They know that God has promised to sustain them spiritually through whatever he calls them to pass through. They realize he has promised to sustain them under that overwhelming weight and burden. They know God has promised that nothing, absolutely nothing, can or will separate them from his love in Christ Jesus. And they know God has promised something, oh, a glorious promise. Our hope that they are being preserved. He is keeping them. He is guarding them. By his almighty power for a salvation, oh, get this, get it good, a salvation to be revealed in the last day. Not now. You've heard me say it a few times. Here it is again. The Christian life always ends well. Praise God. It rarely goes well. The Christian life always ends well. It rarely goes well. When it doesn't go well, and change upon change upon change, like like a flood overwhelming us, is our daily lot and experience. My friend, what will you hold on to? There is only one thing we can hold on to, an unchanging God. This chapter tells us that God always keeps his promise. Here's the fourth reason why this chapter ought to be the highlight of our week. It tells us that a vital relationship with God is absolutely necessary. A vital, living, active, lively. You get the idea. Relationship with God is absolutely necessary. We're going to see that because Paul really belabors the point. Beginning more or less in verse 11 all the way through to verse 24. I just want to snatch one verse out of that Context, the 22nd verse, look at what Paul says there. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be. Cut off. Now I hope and pray that worries you. It ought to worry us. And I'm not going to unravel and unpack it right now because I can't. I'm just going to leave it hanging there in the air. And we're going to come back two or three Sundays from now and we'll get into it. What exactly is Paul saying? What does he mean? All I want to point us to right now make us aware of at this moment is Paul's main point and purpose in this text, 11 through 24. His main purpose is to demonstrate that the nation of Israel as a whole experienced unmatched privileges in their national history. Yet it did them no good. Let me explain it in slightly different terms. Israel possessed so many privileges that ultimately did them no good. The plagues. They witnessed the ten plagues. Why didn't that have a transformative effect upon them? God parted the sea in their very presence. God visited them on Mount Sinai. The trumpet blast, the thunder, the fire, the smoke, the lightning. There it was, visible, tangible. There it was. Why did it have no impact upon them? God sustained them through the wilderness, quail and manna, and gave them water, everything they needed to survive. Again, why did it bear no lasting change upon their lives? God led them into the promised land gave them those unbelievable military victories beginning with the fall of the city of Jericho. Why did they remain unchanged? They fell into sin and rebellion. And so God sent them that series of judges and delivered them miraculously. Why but a few years later were they dabbling, wallowing in the mire yet again? God sent them a series of prophets, men like Elijah and Elisha, performing unbelievable miracles in their, list, in, in their presence. Why were their hearts their heart so hard and they were untouched by these miracles? And to top it all off, what did God do? He sent the Son of God, incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who preached in their presence right now as if he were here preaching to them, performing inexplicable miracles in their very presence. And yet they were not Affected. It testifies to what, says the Apostle Paul in this portion of Romans 11 Israel possessed so many privileges that ultimately did them no good. There is comfort in external religion. We need to hear this. There is comfort in external religion. Especially in what has traditionally been a so-called Christian culture, subculture. Especially for someone who is raised in a church environment. There is a measure of comfort in external religion. Why? Because it's familiar. The danger is what? That that religion is never internalized. That religion is never personalized. Again, excuse the reference, but it's fresh in mind. Back in Canada two weeks ago, obviously visiting with a number of friends. And when you get together with friends you haven't seen for so long, what do you invariably end up talking about? How's so-and-so doing? Have you heard from so-and-so? Any update on so-and-so? Oh, how discouraged I was to hear of the number of young men, women I grew up with whose marriages are now in disarray, who have all but abandoned the church, abandoned the faith. Who have outright rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The number of students I taught at Bible college over a period of three or four years. Oh, I praise God. A number of them have gone on. And God is working mightily in and through their lives. But the number who were there professing the name of Christ. Only today who have absolutely nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we explain that? How do we account for that? That is what Paul is wrestling with in this portion, these verses in Romans 11. And the answer, again, he's going to give is this. It is possible, and this is from Israel's example, it is possible to be in a position of external privilege without experiencing inward change. It bears worth repeating. It is possible to be in a position of external privilege, like this right now. Without experiencing inward change, to put it in slightly different terms, it is possible to associate with the people of God without ever fellowshipping with the Son of God. I, I, you know, I might, be speak, I might actually be speaking to one or two of you. Actually, I know I am. I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, I am speaking to one or two of you. Right now, at this very moment, don't close your ears. I'm speaking to you. God the Spirit, I pray, is speaking to you. Raised in the church... You know the verses, you know the scriptures, well, at least you think you do, and you think you know truth, and yet it is something you have never, ever internalized. You're familiar with it all. Nobody can tell you anything because you know it all. Friend, you know nothing. You know nothing until you have owned it. You know nothing until you have digested it. We know nothing until our lives are conformed to it. Paul's going to give it. He's going to lay it on the line when he gets into the 12th chapter. Because in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, middle of 15, he's going to demonstrate what grace looks like in action. He's going to demonstrate the mercies of God. What a life looks like when gripped by the mercy of God. And for starters, right there, just look at it. Chapter 12, verse 1, what's he going to say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your lives in their totality as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Where is your heart? Really? Where is your heart? Now, I know what you're thinking. Probably thinking to yourself, I I thought this was the fourth reason why Romans 11 would be the highlight of our week. That doesn't sound like a highlight. It is a highlight. Why? Because we need this constant exhortation because we're like sheep that wander daily. And we need this constant reminder and exhortation. Whether it be a gentle pushing or the shepherd taking his rob and striking us where it hurts. We need this constant exhortation to do what? To make sure we are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be a highlight of your week. That the shepherd through his word should bring us back, reorienting us, our perspective, our understanding, and forcing us to ask that question, where have I been? What have I been up to? Where has my mind gone? And above all else, what has captured my heart? Where is my heart? That's the fourth reason. This chapter points us, tells us that a vital relationship with God is absolutely necessary. And here's the fifth and final reason, bringing us back to our text. This chapter tells us that our only hope rests in God's sovereign grace. This chapter tells us that our only hope rests in God's sovereign grace. It's really the first 10 verses, but we're only biting off verses 1 through 6. Here they are very simply, very simply. Notice firstly, there's a question, verse 1. I ask them, has God rejected his people? Why would he ask that? He asked that because of what he stated in the last verse of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient contrary people. So from the time of Sinai, when God turned them into a nation... To the days of Christ and his apostles. This is what God has done. He has held out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Ethnically as a nation, Israel has rejected God. Rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean God has rejected them? That's the question. Here's the answer. Notice secondly still in verse 1. By no means. What does Paul do? Look at me. That's what he says. Look at me. I myself am. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, into verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he hasn't completely rejected the nation of Israel. He hasn't rejected all Jews. Uh, If he had, how do you explain me? How do you explain any of the disciples? How do you explain those Jews who have converted? No, 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 no. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew from within the nation of Israel. That's his answer. Now he pulls out even greater evidence in the middle of verse 2. Do you not know? Has this escaped your notice? Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? And now here he goes all the way back to 1 Kings 19. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Remember the context, historically. Ahab and Jezebel are upon the throne. I think this is probably the pits when it comes to the history of the nation of Israel and their idolatry, the depth of their idolatry. When Ahab, King Ahab and his queen Jezebel are upon the throne. During that time, Elijah sums it up there in verse 3. They've killed all your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I'm the only one still standing. What's God's response? Verse 4. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What is his point? Even at the worst point in the history of the nation of Israel, there was still what? A remnant. And there has always been a remnant. And Paul's point is what? You think simply because the nation as a whole has rejected God, that God has rejected all the Jews? No, I stand here as living proof. And you need to have a historical view of things. Even back in the days of Elijah, there was a remnant. Always a remnant. That's his conclusion, beginning in verse 5. So too, at the present time. There is a remnant. God has not rejected the Jews' car blanche. No. He is saving those whom he foreknew, his people, from among Israel. That there is a remnant even in my day. Notice the last expression in verse 5. Chosen by grace. This is the fifth and final reason why this chapter, chapter 11, ought to be the highlight of our week. It tells us that our only hope rests in God's sovereign grace. What exactly do we mean by that expression, sovereign grace? Paul himself defines it in verse 6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I asked you a couple months ago, why are you saved? Right? And and an answer, a perfectly acceptable answer that you ought to give to that is because I believed in the Lord Jesus. No problem with that, of course. Repent and believe. We must believe in order to be saved. But I, I probed a little further. That's fine. Why did you believe? Why have you believed? Why have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If your answer is anything other than God's sovereign grace, you have reintroduced your works into the gospel and the meaning of salvation. There is only one reason, one way to account for the fact that I stand before you as a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of you, most of you, praise God, who are believers, you can echo exactly what I'm going to say. The reason is this, chosen By grace. Chosen by grace. Oh, what a comfort this is to the soul. How? It reveals God's love in a special way, doesn't it? It reveals God's love in a special way. We don't need to earn His love. We don't need to worry that His love for us will change. Because His love for His people is eternal. And this is a truth that not only should comfort us, it is a truth that ought to change us. Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 4:7, what do you have that you did not receive? As a Christian, what do you have that you did not receive? Absolutely nothing. This realization produces gratitude. It cultivates humility. It compels service. It encourages forgiveness, and it promotes holiness. It is beautifully summed up in the song we're going to conclude with. Let me give you a couple of lines from it right now as I wrap up. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I should live in you unless your grace had called me. And taught my opening mind. The world would have enthralled me. To heavenly glories blind. My Lord I did not choose you. For that could never be. My heart would still refuse you. Had you not chosen me. Our great God in glory above. Your ways are indeed unsearchable. Your judgment's inscrutable. You are the mighty God from whom and for whom and to whom all things exist. And we worship you. We praise you for your word which you have entrusted to us. By the Holy Spirit's power and anointing, we ask even now for your blessing upon your word to the life of every man and woman, boy and girl gathered in this place at this moment. And we ask it for your eternal glory. And in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.